It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Hey everyone, welcome into another Pipeline podcast. Tim McMaster here along with Jim Callison, Jonathan Mayo of MLBPipeline.com. On the podcast this week, we're talking about some players on the rise as the draft approaches. Players who weren't in the MLB Pipeline Top 100, but maybe when we expand to 200. We'll also discuss Luis Robert, who looks to be heading to the White Sox organization. But before we get to all of that, we're excited to be joined by Twins scouting director Sean Johnson. Uh, of course, the Twins have the number one pick in next month's draft. So plenty of excitement swirling around Sean and the Twins. And Sean, you were promoted to scouting director back in December. My first question for you is, how long did it take before you started to think about pick number 1-1 one, one after you were promoted? I'd say somewhere under five seconds, probably <laughs> if I can recall it right. And then obviously plenty of work goes into it from, from there. Um, now we're, we're into crunch time here, the final month. Is this when kind of everything comes together and you pull all the pieces of information you've been drawing over all this time and, and kind of put it into one place and to try to finally make the right decision here in June? Yeah, well, you know, we've – we're we're working it down to the end. We'll we'll have guys covering regionals and super regionals and watching the college guys and we've uh had a few workouts for some high school guys that have ended their season and so yeah, our guys are working hard and putting in some long days trying to get all the information gathered and, and get it in the right order. So uh we'll meet here in a couple of weeks and try to put the board together and see how it goes. Uh, hey, Sean, it's uh, Jonathan Mayo, and I wanted to start off just with a, sort of a general uh, trying to figure out a philosophy sense. You know, it's hard enough, you know, sitting in the scouting director's chair for the first time, but you've got a lot of new pieces there, you know, uh, with, the, with the new general manager structure, uh, you know, changes really for the first time in a long sort of string of continuity in, in Minnesota. Uh, how challenging has it been just to make sure that everybody's on the same page and, and moving forward in the same direction when there are probably some differing philosophies at play here? Yeah, uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun, really. We've, we've been able to take kind of what we've done here um, over time with the Twins and then kind of mesh it in with, you know, Derek's background in Cleveland and, and Thad's background in, in Texas, which are two different worlds. Um, so we've tried to just take good ideas from – um, each each uh, background and and try to put a plan together going forward to bring it all together just to make everything uh, a little better and more synergistic. So, but it's been a lot of fun. It hasn't been really difficult. We've had really good conversations, and those guys are great communicators, and and uh, they've been open-minded, and so have, so have myself and our staff, and we're just trying to <clears throat> see how we can put things together in, in a better way. Sean, Jim Callis here, and. I think I asked this question of the team that picks number one whenever I do a story, I'm talking to that team in that particular year. But just explain to fans how 
I mean, it's obviously different having the number one pick, but it's not radically different from what you guys normally would do, is it? I mean, I assume, obviously, you're getting extra looks at the guys who are going to go at the very top of the draft because of the importance of the pick, but you guys are still scouting the whole country. I mean, outside of you know, maybe some guys who are going to go in the middle of the first round who aren't going to make it back to your next two picks, I mean, you guys are still scouting everybody kind of like you normally would, and then you have two more picks that come up pretty quick at 35 and 37. Yeah, um, I think you said it right. You know, we, we've been able to – we've picked high, you know, the last few years, unfortunately. So the, the upside is we're not going to get picked off. So that's kind of been um, the way we've looked at it as a positive. And you can schedule, you know, your scouts to see the certain games that, that are meaningful and you know who's in play and you can kind of create your own pool of players. Um, and like you said, we have extra picks. So, you know, we haven't been able to rule out a ton of guys, you know, that might fit in between. But – Certainly we've tried to find guys we're comfortable with at that next pick and and not spend as much time on them. So it, it is a little bit of a challenge, but scheduling-wise it's easy because we're going after the guys we really want to take. So in, in that regard, it's been easy. Uh, speaking of that, Sean, um, uh, you know, there have been various reports about the number of players still sort of in that in that bucket that you're looking at for 1-1. For, for one, one. And, uh, you know, without getting into specifics, because I know that's when we start getting on dangerous scouting thin ice, um, I, I was curious, like, what the process is from this point now up until June 12th when you have to make that selection in terms of whittling down, you know, whittling down the list at all uh, and, and what goes into figuring out who the right guy is for that pick. Yeah, and, you know, again, we're, we're going to work it down to the end and, and we're going to try to – we'll spend a week or so meeting and, and trying to figure out our final list of names. And, and then there's other, you know, things that come into play uh, as far as, like, signability, dollar, you know, sticker price, all those things. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to try to take the best player on the board and, and you know, using every opinion in our room, which we have quite a few this year, more than in the past, which has been – you know, been great, you know, using different resources and, you know, we've got different, you know, people doing different things on the metric side, analytic side, and, and being able to use that information to kind of come up with an answer has been really a lot of fun for me personally. Uh, I've learned a lot, and I think our scouts have learned a lot. And um, so we, we've, been, we've been trying to grow, you know, as a, as a staff. And in the meanwhile, you know, we're going to spend $14 million. So we've kind of had two different – you know, things going on timeline-wise, like big picture, small picture stuff. And, and uh, so, um, but, yeah, we're, we're, we're excited for it. We're going to get a good player. We know that. So we're, we're looking forward to it. Can you share, Sean, I mean, how many – I know we're not necessarily going to get the list out of you unless you want to share it. We'd be happy to hear it. Sure. How many players <laughs> you guys are looking at at this point? I mean, obviously you still have, you know, I guess it's about three weeks before you have to make a final decision on June 12th. Yeah, I mean, I'd say it's it's under seven, um, but not much under that, I wouldn't think. Um, I, I think it's pretty clear, you know, we read all the mock drafts and, and different opinions uh, on the players. Like, I don't think there's a consensus 1-1, which, you know, you wish that King Griffey Jr. was in this draft and it'd be easy, but it's a little too not. old now, so, I think, though. You, know, or I don't, you guys don't have that, do you? If you do, let me know. <laughs> no. No, I don't think but, there's a, a consensus guy. I mean, it's funny. I mean, one of the guys this year is unique, too. I mean, not only – I mean, Brendan McKay is up at the top of the draft, and I don't even think that if I we surveyed 30 teams, Sean, that 
you know, there'd be a clear answer as to whether he's better as a hitter or a pitcher. Can you remember, and I'm not trying to pin you down on specifics about Brendan, because I know it's a little sticky with the number one pick being up in the air, but can you remember a two-way player since you've been scouting who was kind of equally talented that good? I, I, I you can't. Know, I, like a legitimate two-way prospect, you can't really tell which one he's better at. I, I can't remember one. You know, I, I played against Mark Kotze, who I thought was a god, you know, at the time. Um, but he was a much better hitter, you know, looking back on it. But, like, performance-wise, statistically, a lot of guys throw out Olerud as, a, as kind of a comp, like, who could do both very well. I think you have to go back to that. Right. Um, you know, being a Wichita State guy, Darren Dreifert was pretty good both ways. Um, uh, I don't I don't really know Brooks Kieschnick, but you're going back to names like that, like, but nobody in recent memory. Uh, Sean, one other guy I wanted to ask about uh, who is still very much in the mix is, is Hunter Green, uh, another guy who is pretty talented two ways, so also probably be a first-rounder as an infielder, but anyone considering him at the top of the draft is looking at him at, as, a, as a pitcher. So uh, I guess the, the, the first part of that question about him uh, is uh, how much does – the fact that, you know, the draft history is showing, you know, a right-handed high school pitcher has, for whatever reason has never been taken number one. Does that make, you know, anybody picking 1-1 uh, reluctant over the past few years? Uh, and I guess the follow-up with him is, you know, the sort of curious situation where he stopped throwing competitively in mid-April. Does that make it more difficult to, uh, to make a decision on him when it comes to time to make a selection? Well, the first part of that question, you know, I, we don't really buy into the we're scared to take a guy, a right-handed pitcher, 1-1. Um, you, you really just you're, – you're at the mercy of the group of players that are in that particular year. You know, if Josh Hamilton, who was a freak, and some would say is the best talent a lot of scouts have ever seen, if he was in a different draft class or just never existed, you know, Josh Beckett would have been 1-1, and no one would have scoffed at that at all. So – it, it's just depending on the year. Obviously, there's a risk, but, the, you know, in my mind, they're all risky. You know, you don't really know uh, when you take anybody. So <clears throat> you're kind of just hedging your bet on the college guys if you go that route. And um, But, you know, Hunter Green's a terrific talent, terrific kid, and we've seen, we've seen him quite a bit. So we're not really worried about the fact that he, he uh, <clears throat> stopped playing in games, pitching in games towards the stretch. You know, we had guys that we had hoped to – run in there and see him perform. But, um, you know, we've seen him for two years, so, you know, I, I understand where he's coming from. Sean, in your, in your first year as scouting director, obviously you were pretty familiar with what the job was going to entail, having been a cross-checker for a while. But what has been the uh, the biggest surprise or, or most unexpected uh, part of your job that you, you didn't necessarily anticipate? Well, I, th I think the biggest thing I've learned is, like, what I do with my day come like where I'm going to go and, you know, my thoughts on the day or where I need to travel to kind of come last. You know, I'm, I'm putting our whole staff ahead of me. That's just the way I've chose to t take it on, you know, make sure everyone else is where they need to be and, and play more of the quarterback role, which I enjoy a, a ton. And um, so, you know, what I'm doing with my day or, you know, guys have stuff every day that comes up, I'll get a call about this or that. And, you know, there's always fires to put out and schedules to analyze and figure out which way to go. So by the time I get to, you know, what I'm doing and where I'm going to go comes comes last, which 
I had an idea it would be that way, but after you know this spring, I definitely know that's the case, which which is fine by me. I, I really enjoy it. Well, Sean, we know you're very busy with the draft quickly approaching. Thank you so much for taking a few minutes to talk to us about that number one pick and, and where the Twins sit right now. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Sean. Great insight there from Sean Johnson, and obviously we'll find out where all that decision-making ends up when the draft arrives here in June. We were going to move on and uh, talk to Jonathan and Jim about what they would do if they were Sean Johnson and the other stuff in their podcast this week. But before we switch over to that, we want to take a moment to tell you about the Cut Forecast. The Cut Forecast is the podcast from the staff of MLB.com's Cut Force section, which focuses on the lighter side of baseball. If you've made it this far into our podcast, we really think you'll enjoy that one as well. It'll make you laugh, and you might even learn something about baseball dogs or ballpark food. Last week's episode suggested some business pitches for new Shark Tank investor Alex Rodriguez, then really went off the rails with a news story about a school of fish taking over a baseball field in Toronto. If that sounds like something you're into, search Cut Forecast. That's C-U-T, the number four, C-A-S-T, in iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts and click subscribe. Now on with our show. Okay, you guys are in a good spot here where you can act like you're Sean Johnson and decide who you're going to take at this point with a few weeks to go before the draft, but none of the ramifications, none of the pressure that he is facing along with his staff to really get this pick right. So, Jim, I'll start with you, um, and maybe you can take into account some of the things you just heard from Sean Johnson, but who at this point would you take 1-1 if you were picking like the Twins are? I'm torn between two guys. Of course, you know, I can never just give one answer, but I, I will have to make a decision. I'm torn between two guys, but it's not the two guys that you would think. I if it were me, I think I would be picking between Vanderbilt right-hander Kyle Wright and North Carolina high school lefty Mackenzie Gore. Um, I, would pick, I would pick Kyle Wright. I think he gives you the best combination of floor and ceiling in this draft. I think he's got a higher ceiling than McKay. I think he's got a higher floor than Hunter Green. He, he's good in both regards. I think he's going to be quick to the big leagues. You know, he got off to a slow start this year because the command wasn't pinpoint, but the stuff has always been there. He's dominated for the last five or six weeks. I mean, you're talking about a plus fastball, plus breaking stuff. You know, you know changeup is, you know, solid, you know, third, fourth pitch, you know, throw strikes. You know, he's got the classic, you know, 6'4", 220, athletic starters frame. I would take Kyle Wright, although I, I remain, like I know this part doesn't shock either of you, <laughs> I remain just so intrigued by Mackenzie Gore as a lefty with a you know, fastball. You know, it's at least a plus fastball. He shows you two plus breaking pitches. He shows you a plus changeup. He shows you pretty much plus control. He's pretty consistent. He's super athletic. Uh, but, uh, yeah, after that, that's my latest ode to Mackenzie Gore. But I would take Kyle Wright. Um, but, man, I would be tempted to take Mackenzie Gore. And this just kind of shows how wide open this seems like it is and maybe getting more and more wide open as we get closer to draft day. All right, Jonathan, you're up. I love Jim hedging his bets. Of course. That means you get to Gore. Just in case Mackenzie Gore ends up being better than Kyle Wright, he'll be like, see? No, no. Um, I'm on record. I'd take Kyle Wright. uh, I mean, and, you know, the the, the interesting thing is is that uh, Gore is not one of the candidates the Twins are officially looking at uh, at 1-1, at least uh, by my last conversations I've, I've had with anybody there. But um, 
I would uh, I would still take Hunter Green. Um, now maybe I'm colored a little bit by the time I got to spend with them last week, uh, but if you consider that a home visit, you know, like scouts do, then fine. Uh, I, I just think that uh, the athleticism and the uh, the baseball IQ and the maturity uh, well beyond his years uh, all add up to a uh, future potential superstar. And, um, you know, I think it's one of those things that we both know a lot about the top guys, but when we work on our top 200, I do California and Jim does North Carolina. So he has spent a lot more time talking to people about Mackenzie Gore and I've you know, spent more time talking to people uh, about Hunter Green. So uh, it, it kind of stands to reason we might lean in, in that direction. Uh, I just think that uh, I, you know, I know people nitpick at, at Green's breaking ball uh, as, a, as a potential issue. I just think that there's so much to work with there. He's only 17. Uh, and because of that athleticism, uh, you could teach him – just about anything, and he's going to take foot. So it's going to be a lot of fun as we get closer and closer, and we'll see if uh, some clarity comes around as we get closer to draft day as well. All right, well, I know you guys are both working on the top 200 draft prospects list now, and that's going to be out in a couple of weeks on MLBPipeline.com. So I wanted to focus in on that and some players that didn't make the top 100 but maybe now be head, are heading in that direction will be in the top 100, or maybe not, but just uh, maybe one or two guys that you each really like um, that we can't read about on MLBPipeline.com right now, but we're going to be able to at some point. And, Jonathan, you can go first on this one. Uh, let's start with just one player. We'll see how long we go there. Uh, one player you really like uh, that's moving up draft boards. I'm going to uh... – go with a, a high school right-hander from Massachusetts named Matt Tabor. You know, as, as is often the case, uh, guys in the Northeast uh, tend to move up boards if they're, if they're performing well just because scouts didn't have a chance to, to see them and, until the weather warms up. Uh, and they you know, tended to see all the guys in California and Florida uh, maybe you know, more than one time over. So uh, they they uh, want the opportunity to, to see these guys. And, and Tabor is an interesting guy just because there's a good amount of protection. Uh, he actually grew about two inches from the fall to the spring. Uh, I saw an old blurb uh, from, a, from a, I think it was a perfect game event when, back in 2012, and he was five foot four and 100 pounds. And now he's six foot two. Um, he was like a little scrawny middle infielder, and he still plays shortstop, so he's athletic. But uh, you know, he's been uh, sitting 92, 93, and it starts up to 95, 96 at times. Uh, he's got a good feel for the secondary stuff. Uh, you know, some some upside there. The arm is pretty fresh because you don't get to throw as much when you're from Massachusetts. So uh, he is a guy who's gone from kind of off the radar to I'm hearing maybe going as high as the second round. Jim, how about you? Well, you know me, I'm going to pick two guys because I'm lumping two guys together. It, two guys who aren't on the current top 100 that I think have, since we, we released that about six weeks ago, have established themselves as, as solid second-round picks because they're college hitters who are performing in a bad year for college hitters. 
Are Drew Ellis, Louisville third baseman, first baseman, he kind of switches positions depending on where Brendan McKay is uh, in the lineup. And then Gavin Sheets, a first baseman from Wake Forest. Uh, Ellis has got the best numbers in a deep Louisville lineup. Um, you know, hadn't played uh, regularly before this year, although he was very good in the Northwoods League last summer. He's got a quick bat from the right side of the plate, good strength, good leverage, walks more than he strikes out, so he doesn't sell out for home runs. It's a good approach with some power. You know, he, he has a chance to be a decent third baseman, um, average arm, you know, not, the, not the quickest or rangiest guy, um, kind of similar to the guy they had at third base before him at Louisville, Blake Tiberi, who was a, or Blake Tiberi, who was a, a third-round pick last year by the Mets, who was a little bit more athletic and had a little less power. And then Gavin Sheets is the son of, the son of Larry Sheets, uh, who he played with in high, who played four in high school. His dad was his coach. Um, last year, if you'll recall, Wake Forest had you know a big-body power hitter and Will Craig who went in the first round. Gavin will probably go more in the second. He's six-five, two thirty-five. He's among the national home run leaders. Got a really nice swing, very strong. Uh, he's shown more discipline and pitch recognition this year. And even though, I mean, being a guy that big, I mean, he, he's limited to first base. You know, he gets the job done over there, and he has a very strong arm for the position as a little bonus. So I think of the guys who didn't make our top 100 in my half of the country the first time around, Drew Ellis and Gavin Sheets are probably the two best guys. Jonathan, Jim went with two, so you get a chance to add another one if you'd like. It's like 30 seconds for rebuttal. Yeah. Um, uh, I think if I'm going to pick somebody, Cal Poly's got uh, a couple of decent starters. Uh, and interestingly enough, um, this, the Saturday guy who's getting a little more buzz, Eric Yeoman is the Friday guy. He's a de- you know, decent college performer. Uh, Spencer Howard is their Saturday guy. Uh, and his stuff, his pure stuff, is a little bit better. There might be more upside there, uh, at least compared to Yeoman. And, and uh, he has been moving up boards as uh, the stuff has equaled really strong performance. He's missed some bats. Uh, you know, so he's uh, – I'm not quite as excited about him as I was about Tabor just because of the sort of pop-up nature of, of Tabor. But uh, uh, I find it always interesting when – especially when you're looking at a college rotation and, and the guy who isn't you know, thought of as the quote-unquote ace uh, is the better uh, – potentially a better pro prospect. All right, one more topic on the podcast this week, and that's Luis Robert, the Cuban prospect who it's not official yet, but it seems like he is headed to the Chicago White Sox, agreeing on a deal with Chicago. So a system that's already improved so much with trades has now dipped big time into the international market as well with uh, maybe the last big, big money signing uh, on the international market because of the changing of the rules um, let's just start with who this player is because, Jim, I've heard comps to Yoan Mankata. Um, where, how does he compare to Yoan Mankata? Yeah, I, I think he's similar. I think that's, uh, the, the, that's the best comparison because you're talking about two guys who were both 19 when they signed out of Cuba. They got the two biggest bonuses in, in amateur history. Uh, both are known for explosive bat speed, well above average uh, foot speed. They come with some swing and miss concerns. They they have uh, good arms to go with their their range. You know, the, you know, Robert is a right-handed hitter. Mankata is a switch hitter. Uh, Robert is an outfielder. Mankata is an infielder. I think Robert probably had a little bit more swing and miss concerns coming in than Mankata did, but I, I think they're they're similar players, and that seems to be the the obvious comp. Hey, Jonathan, um, he's just 19 years old, um, so you, you never know, I guess, once he gets into organized baseball. But he's played at the highest level in Cuba, and he's thrived there. Um, how long do you think 
it'll take for him to make his way uh, through the, the White Sox system and, and up to the big leagues? Yeah, I mean, you have to see how the transition goes. And you have to keep in mind that it's not just about going on the field and playing. There's, you know, the, the whole cultural assimilation and, and things of that nature that can add some time to it. Uh, because he's still so young, I, there's no reason to, to rush him. Uh, you know, that said, Mankata uh, got to the highest levels relatively quickly. But I think him following a similar path to Mankata, uh, you know, start him off in low A, let him, let him earn a promotion up. Uh, you know, then he can, if he goes two levels at a time, uh, then we're talking, what, two and a half years maybe he's, he's going to be in the big leagues, at which case he'll only be 22 at the most, depending on when he actually gets his pro career started. So I think that's probably fair. You know, uh, this isn't one of you know, the instances when uh, Cuban players would come and they're signing at age 25, say, and, and they're moving to a higher levels or right, or right to the big leagues. So uh, he'll need some development time, you know, the, throughout the, the organizational ladder, I'm sure. The White Sox obviously now have Mancata, originally signed by the Red Sox, but the big trade in the offseason. They have Jose Abreu, another Cuban player. Uh, Jim, do you think that was a factor in, in Robert's decision, the fact that the White Sox are an organization with other Cuban players already either in the big leagues or close to it? Yeah, no, I think it was definitely was a factor. Uh, you know, the White Sox put together a video where those guys kind of made a, a direct pitch to to Robert. You know, I think Abreu has talked often about how comfortable he's been made to feel in Chicago and, and touted it. And you know, I, I really think too, not only are the White Sox getting a terrific talent here, you know, probably the best player in the amateur market. You know, a guy who. You know, Jonathan, I think you'd probably be on board with this, too. I think if he was in this year's draft, we'd be talking about a guy who, who very well could have been the number one overall pick by the Twins if he were eligible. A very talented guy. But also, going forward, the rules are changing. You're no longer going to be able to spend whatever you want on international guys as long as you're willing to pay matching tax penalty. I mean, you're basically going to be limited, depending on where you finish, to either spending $5.25 million annually on international guys all the way down to $4.75 million annually on international guys. And you can trade for an equal amount of money, so the most you could pay a guy is $10.5 million. But going forward, it's not going to be who's got the flexibility with the various restrictions to, to pay the most or who's got the most, you know, the willingness to spend the most money. It's going to be about relationships. So I think uh, it's important, uh, you know, not just to get Robert, but I think the White Sox are kind of positioning themselves to, to be a player for future Cuban uh, prospects who come through. You agree with that, Jonathan? Yeah, no, I think uh, I think that's uh, right on on the money. Um, uh, he is. Uh, it's funny. I'll, I'll be answering a, an inbox question about where he would go uh, in the draft and where he goes in the top 100. There's a lot of excitement about him, but uh, uh, this is the the last sort of everybody in, uh, especially as more and more younger players. Cuba Con that fit within the, the, the international rules uh, it will be limited in terms of what uh, teams will be able to do uh, to sign a guy like that. All right, it'll certainly be interesting, and I know we had Jesse on a couple of weeks ago, and he said if, if Robert was part of the upcoming international class, he would be far and away the number one prospect as far as that class goes. Of course, those kids 
a lot of them 16, 17 years old, and, and Robert 19 years old. All right, so another thing to watch as, uh, when, as far as when it's finalized, as far as him going to the White Sox, uh, when he starts his professional career, where he starts his professional career, and how quickly he makes his way to the south side of Chicago. All right, that'll do it for another edition of the Pipeline Podcast. For Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo, I'm Tim McMaster. We also want to thank Sean Johnson for joining us on the show this week. Tune in again next time.